Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing number six from the TV show, The Prisoner. And joining us for the discussion is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. The Prisoner is such a great show. (laughs) This was, it it was like very compelling and satisfying in, I mean, like, we'll probably get into it in the discussion, but like in a way that I have not felt with a lot of recent television that I like is also compelling and satisfying. But I think Mm -hmm. I've talked on the quick cast, like Kester and I have been watching the crown, you know, for, for the past several weeks, we, you know, do like one or two episodes a week. And I watched the crown. I'm like, this is, you know, well-made stuff. This is compelling. And then I watched the prisoner. I was like, I really want to slide in another one. And I don't feel that way about the crown very often. Yes. And I mean, we'll, we'll we'll get into it. The the prisoner for anyone who is unfamiliar, it is a 1967 uh, and 68 British TV show, and it aired for a single 17 episode season. And it starred Patrick McGowan or McGuhan. I am not 100 percent sure on that pronunciation. <laughs> I, I think it's McGowan. Yeah, that, that's I think I think that's what I've heard before, but yeah. I haven't. It's not like I've listened to an entire podcast about the prisoner before. I'm more comfortable with McGowan. Uh, that feels more more correct. Um, and he plays a spy who unexpectedly resigned from his agency, and then uh, he gets gassed and he wakes up in a surreal village from which he cannot escape. And while he refuses to answer questions about why he had quit his spy job, he's unsure what side is actually holding him in this village and interrogating him. And we're and this would be this would be like like Cold War setting. Yes. Yeah, it is, uh, you know, contemporary with 1960s, you know, the, that's yeah, what so we're he's like, with. oh, is it is it is it Russia? Is it England? Is it America? Know, who, you know, yeah, you know. like like who who has got me here? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're discussing the episodes titled The Chimes of Big Ben and Many Happy Returns, which there is a little thematic overlap that we'll talk about. And there's some self-awareness that comes in about some of that, that, uh, you know, narrative overlap that happens in these two and some of the trivia that I have. Um, this is a TV show that I have heard referenced throughout my life as like an important sci-fi TV show. And I understand, and it gets included in sci-fi. And I think there's, there's some reasons for that. Um, but it's also not a sci-fi show <laughs> Yeah, at the same yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Like when you said sci-fi, I was like, mm, really? Yes. But, but I'm like, ah, I guess. Um, I, I think my first time that I remember or that I can like vividly remember a, a, an exposure to like footage from the prisoner was Leonard Nimoy hosting a documentary about the history of sci-fi television. And I think it was on the sci-fi channel. Um, and I tried to like find any evidence of this documentary and I couldn't, but I, I remember it. <laughs> and I remember like just some footage of thinking that looks really strange. And um, I, I, I know the first exposure I have to footage of it. Oh, okay. It is, it's, there's a small clip of it that gets put onto a TV in the film, Kate and Leopold. Oh, the, the, um, Hugh Jackman, um, Meg Ryan, right? Yeah, Meg Ryan, romantic comedy, and he he like he wakes up and he hits the remote accidentally, and it turns on uh, a clip of the prisoner, and I think it's from the pilot. Um, I was like, oh, I think this is the exact like scene that I saw mm-hmm. in that movie, and 
the I, and like I did not register. It's like, oh, that's the prisoner. I think our dad said, oh, that's from the prisoner. Right. And this so that is, was like cemented it in my head. I will say, like, as you become aware of the prisoner as, you know, this TV show and its basic premise and um, the themes, it's very susceptible for you to experience uh, the bottom line half effect afterwards, because there are references to the prisoner in so many other TV shows and movies and songs um, and, and comic it, books. It's like one of those things that you realize like, oh, everyone else watched this and I had no idea and they didn't make it overt mm-hmm. that this is what they were referencing. There's an entire Wikipedia page about references to the prisoner in pop culture. Like not <laughs> just is... a section of its page. It, uh, no, a, no, a, a, an entire page. One. Yes. And that's that is a stamp of distinction. And I will just say it is like dozens and dozens of TV shows. And then I started to scroll through the songs that have like lyric references to it. I'm like, oh, that's just too many. I can't even <laughs> begin to process uh, how frequent this show is, which it's kind of fascinating because it is, you know, 17 episodes. It, that's it. That's all we have. Um, I, I mean, uh, I think there this. was like an attempt to remake it in oh, the, the 2000s. It was remade in the 2000s with Jim Caviezel and Ian McKellen. I like both of them. Yes, uh, I looked at reviews. It did not get good reviews. So I have it in the trivia. Let me just go. I'll just go ahead and jump to that in the trivia. It's in 2009 AMC or A&E. I can't remember which one it was. Um, Let's see. Where is it? In 2009, a six episode miniseries adaptation was aired on AMC. It had Jim Caviezel as number six and Ian McKellen as number two, but it had mixed reviews and I've never seen any footage of it. And in 2016, there was an audio drama adaptation of the series that was produced. And I can't even tell you how many film like like attempts have been made or, or like steps have been announced of mm-hmm. a film adaptation of The Prisoner, including like uh, in the early 2000s, Christopher Nolan was reportedly considering an adaptation. And most recently, and like just a few years ago, Ridley Scott was reported to be in talks to direct an adaptation of The Prisoner. So it, it you know, very high prof- profile names in Hollywood are still circling this property. I can't decide if I like the notion of a high profile director taking a stab at it. I mean, the one that I'm surprised that I did not hear associated with it is J.J. Abrams because because J.J. Abrams is very open that this is an influential yes. text for him. And when you think about um, his, his TV shows, Alias and Lost, and there's a lot of, of this of the mystery box it's like, oh, this is a formative text for J.J. Abrams mm-hmm. in, in terms of, uh, you know, understanding the context of his story worlds that he wants to build. Yeah. Like if you watch this and then you just like think about Lost a little bit, you're like, oh, yeah. Mm hmm. Um, let's just go ahead and drive into the trivia because th- th- yeah. there's quite a bit here. So Patrick McGowan uh, had starred in a series called Danger Man and in the U.S. it aired as Secret Agent um, for the BBC. And this was in the mid 60s and it was popular. And I-, I don't know the exact nature of BBC television in the 60s. Like now we always make jokes about you do like a six episodes, you know, season and then maybe three years later you do another one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. reportedly uh, they wanted him to come back for another full season. And he told him, told producers he was kind of planning leaving the role he it wasn't as exciting him as much and they asked if he had any of the projects he was interested in and he pitched the prisoner like he is the creator of the prisoner he is yes oh um, wow and he also wrote uh three of the 17 episodes and directed several of the episodes sometimes under a pseudonym like like a uh you know a, a pen name or um mm-hmm. you know a different name for the director but now I, th- I think it was four episodes he directed if i'm remembering right as i was scrolling through um that and um there is let me just double check um he was in the credits. There's no like listing of the creator. There's one other person. I, I want to say it was 
Uh, one other person has been listed as a creator now because of some interviews. Uh, George Markstein is his name. Uh, in some interviews, it sounds like he may have helped develop the pre- premise a bit with Patrick McGowan. Uh, but it seems like Patrick McGowan, this was a uh, like a passion and a vanity project. I mean, I think vanity project sometimes has a bad connotation. But in this case, like he, he really was like he was the force behind getting this made. Uh, and he was involved in all aspects of the production. He's the executive producer of the series star wrote several of the episodes directed several of the episodes um so his fingerprints are all over this hmm. um and so so when he was uh leaving uh danger man this was like the you know the, the the network still wanted him around because he'd been a draw and um a very popular actor and this is what he pitched and so he was able to make this and it ran for one season and i am going to watch all 17 episodes at the moment i've watched seven of the episodes i'm, um, I'm pretty sure that i am going to like watch more of them like i've watched three episodes i watched the pilot and the two were discussing mm-hmm. but i like i definitely wanted to watch more and i just haven't done it yet yeah i like i've done those seven and i absolutely want to finish out the net the, the, the next 10 there's no way i'm not going to my understanding from looking around and also you know things like just being someone who reads about pop culture was that the finale doesn't answer all the questions and there was like fan frustration with this which again jj abrams is a student of the prisoner (laughs) (laughs) of the there there was a quote that patrick mcguin said he had to go into hiding after the finale aired because people were not satisfied with how how much was wrapped up (laughs) and so i don't know what that means yet because i didn't want to go read about the finale i just know that it was seems to have always been planned to be just one season but somehow fans wanted a second season to answer more questions and they never got it. Um, and another interesting bit of trivia, because the nature of the show, which in the pilot, he uh, he gets gassed. Well, this happens in the opening credits every day. <laughs> every yeah, single episode. Like, like this is like they here. Hold on, I, let's, it, pause, it, let's pause and give a, a clean break here because I don't think we're leading into this. OK. One fascinating thing about the show is its opening credits, which it turns out are fairly famous. And once I watched them and realized this was actually the opening credits and not the start of an episode, um, I, I understood why. Because we get the same three-minute sequence at the start of every single episode, which sees Patrick McGowan angrily driving this amazing car. I don't know the name of the car, but it's awesome. Whatever it is. <laughs> it's this, this tiny yellow this thing. weird tiny car. And he can drive it so aggressively, and he's driving angrily down the streets of London, like goes into this underground garage, storms, and this is all silent, like with just uh, sound effects and music happening. Storms into an office, throws his resignation down so violently that it breaks the teacup that's on the table. Yeah, it breaks the the teacup. (laughs) And then he leaves, and then we get like this kind of strange, uh, like uh like mechanized resignation file being moved <laughs> like through the it walls super of, weird that I, one is super weird it's kind of like um the end of rogue one when they have to go re- re- pull out the files from for the but, death star plans but like <laughs> it is it is the weirdest thing where it's just rows and rows of filing cabinets and there's this automated thing that is going to slide his paper into his, a file his records yes uh, and so, uh, yeah, a file cabinet, like just classic metal filing cabinet drawer automatically opens and this this machine drops in his resignation forms or says he's been terminated. Then we see him at his house packing up and gas gets uh, slipped in through a window and he passes out and he wakes up and he looks like he's in the same room. But then he looks out his window and the, he's his his room has been recreated in this strange, surreal village. And, uh, you know, th- then there's a little bit of voiceover as you see hear him arguing with uh, number two saying number two saying he's going to break him and he's going to find out why he quit basically. 
basically, and calling him number six, and then Patrick McGowan screaming, I am not a number, I am, I'm a free man, I think is the exact quote. I'm not yeah. a number, I'm a free man. Uh, and, and then it slips into the actual episode. Um, which I think is the pilot. We meet a number two who's the one that seems to be running the island and Patrick McGowan wants to meet who number one is. We never find out. Uh, and, and, you know, he tries to escape and he fails. There's this cat and mouse game that happens between him and number two um, in every episode where, but, but he's always in the in the maze. And But in some episodes, he does get the upper hand. He just doesn't fully escape ever. <laughs> it's kind yeah, of what seems to like, happen. It, it seems like it's like, okay, he can, like there's so much control from whoever it is in charge of the village that even if he gets away, he can't get far enough away. Exactly. And another interesting thing that you realize after you watch even just into the second episode, it's like, Oh, that's a new actor playing number two. That's odd. And at first it's kind of like, <laughs> was this just a recast because you know, the pilot, because pilots do that all pilots the time get picked up and then sets change between pilot and, and the C- series, all that sort of stuff happens all the time. So at first I assumed it was kind of like, you know, the, the, that just recasting that often happens. And then you watch episode three and you're like, oh, that's a new number two. Like every time number two fails to crack number six and find out the secret the scene that they seem to be wanting is like, why did you quit your spy job? Because uh, you were the world's best spy, it seems to always imply. Uh, then when number two fails to crack him, the next episode, there's a new number two with some new scheme to try and crack him. And within these first seven episodes, like I said, it's, it's kind of fascinating where sometimes the plot of the episode is him trying to escape the village. Um, other times it is him seeing what the scheme of number two is that's gonna how he's gonna try and break him and he like manipulates the scheme so that it actually makes number two look like a fool happens in one episode and and like he gets the upper hand but again he's not escaping this maze ever and so i don't i don't i i saw some references to some number twos returning uh in the future but in these first seven episodes i think patrick mcgowan's the only recurring character <laughs> i mean some of the background characters maybe uh yeah but but it's really just him and whoever is involved in whatever plot uh, either his own plot or number two's plot for that particular episode that's who we get and then it's a new cast and it is it is fortunate especially because you know you talked about this being a vanity project and again that that phrase seems like the wrong phrase for it but like he is compelling enough to be the only person that's recurring like he he works well enough in this particular role and and not everyone could do that this is not an everybody can be the only person that comes back episode to episode yeah, and he has a phenomenal career in Hollywood, like going from the, the 60s up into the 2000s. Like his last uh, credit role, I think, was voice work in Treasure Planet. Um, hmm. he, he was in uh, The Phantom as The Phantom's dad in 1996. <gasps> I love The Phantom. And now <laughs> yes. that I know that that's his dad. Yeah, so he's he's going to uh, you know <laughs> still into the '90s and doing some vo- voice work into the 2000s, but um, he's doing film work from '55 up through 2002 and uh, TV work from '55 up through 2000. Um, his last, uh, I guess, a little bit of trivia that I, I had: his last voice work on television was on an episode of The Simpsons as number six in an episode. <laughs> uh, this is from the year 2000, in which Homer Simpson starts uh, a website to make fake news where he starts just posting nonsense, but then he also starts to start uh, posting conspiracy theories. One of these must get too close to home because he gets drugged and put out on an island. And that's where he meets, he, he gets given a number. I can't remember what number it was. And that's where he meets number six, who's Patrick McGowan is doing the voice of number six. And one of the gags in the Simpsons episode is that Homer tries to build a boat to escape the island. And number six yells at him. I tried that three times. It never works. Um, <laughs> and in, in both the two episodes we're going to look at uh, today, that he, he builds a boat to try he and builds escape. a boat. <laughs> So yeah, there, there's some self-awareness uh, about this. Um, 
the uh, let's just see. Uh, oh, I wanted to acknowledge its cult cult following that it has developed. Um, it it was like a decade later in 1977, an official appreciation society for the series was formed. Um, and there've been multiple books that have been written analyzing the series. And there've been three documentaries uh, about the series. And this is for this, you know, 17 episode series from 1960. Well, uh, and, <laughs> and when I'm watching it and like, I totally get it. I totally understand how people could, you know, create a fandom around this. There's enough something there that I can understand, like people wanting to go to conventions and like see, the actors right or or to discuss it in in panels like we, we've gone to conventions we know convention experience and like i can see how this would drive that same kind of approach that same kind of passion but also i'm like i don't think i've seen anything about it at any of the conventions i've been to yeah you know uh, like with among among all the star trek and everything that i've seen i was like i'm kind of surprised that i haven't seen or like registered, you know, something about the prisoner. Like, I think I would have recognized some artwork or something at one of the stations or, or, it may or tables be or something. a bottom eye half effect happens though, that now that you've watched some episodes, you will notice it. Like you, you maybe you, your eyes passed over, but you just didn't catch on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's definitely possible. But like, like it, it captured me enough that I'm like, I'd buy a t-shirt <laughs> with some of the catchphrases. There's some great catchphrases in it too. Mm-hmm. Um, so at some time in the early 2000s, the Guardian newspaper had an article and it had this quote that has ended up on the prisoner Wikipedia page is where I read it. But I like the quote. It says, without the prisoner, we'd never have cryptic mind bending TV series like Twin Peaks or Lost. It's the Citizen Kane of British TV, a program that changed the genre. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's why we mm-hmm. see so many references. So amongst the references, I pulled some and again, just know there's dozens and dozens. Of well, and, and 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 let's real quick before you go into like the official references, mm-hmm. um, like. We we sent each other some messages as we were watching episodes. And like one of the first things is like I'm getting like I definitely got vibes of of Lost pretty quickly. But I also got vibes from The Good Place. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, um, the neighborhood on The Good Place, which I did not mm-hmm. see acknowledged as like a reference. But I, I think it must have. Like, I feel it. I feel it so completely. It's like and particularly when you find out what The Good Place is really like really about after, you know, at the end of season one, it's like, oh, yes, <laughs> The Good Place neighborhood and the prisoner village. There's mm-hmm. a reason for like some of the overlap of aesthetics between the two, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Truman Show came mm-hmm. to mind. That's what it's referenced. Yeah. And, and that one seems like like very intentional based on like the control room that we see mm-hmm. um, in, in the village. Um, and then. um, Oh, I just had one come to mind and then it disappeared. Well, a few that I saw um, is that there's an issue of the Fantastic Four uh, it, uh, st- when it was still Stanley and Jack Kirby that does an homage to the show in Latveria. Um, mm. uh, some, something with uh, uh, Latverian, uh, Latveria, uh, Dr. Doom's uh, was, country uh, being being similar to the village. I remembered it. It was WandaVision. Oh, that's a good one, too. Yes, definitely. Um, it, I, I didn't write them down, but it turns out like there's a lot of video games that have like NPCs that are named number six and are wearing penny thar, uh, uh, little badges with penny farthing bikes on them. Uh, that, that's hmm. a, a symbol from the prisoner that is never explained, but there's this badge with penny farthing par- and penny that's where they have the bike. Yeah. That's where they have their number. Mm-hmm. And, well, and, and he's got an interesting, like his costume is distinctive enough that you could slip it in and have people notice it, but not so distinctive that like. If someone doesn't know, they're not going to like butt up against to be like, this is a reference to something, yes. you know, like you just have like the white trim on the on the jacket and everything. You're like, oh, if you know, you know, uh huh. 
and, and in the world of the village where everything is like super bright, saturated colors uh, in, in terms of the costumes of people that people are wearing him walking around in black, particularly in the pilot. Like it is actually a pretty striking visual mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, the way that he refuses to blend in um, to Which, this surreal world that has been performed around him. And that's kind of an interesting technique, because usually the technique is to like draw attention to your leads by having one else be more muted. Yes, definitely. And so having him be the most neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Matrix, uh, which is another movie that definitely feels like it has some some elements of this. Uh, there's in the background of a TV that's playing, you see an episode of The Prisoner, just kind of like the the nod of we know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, they're, we, they're, we know where where our inspiration is coming from. Yes, and apparently uh, Alan Moore, uh, the famous comic writer, he makes references to it in both V for Vendetta and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, I can believe so. that Alan Moore loves this. Yes, I, absolutely. Uh, also, like Stephen King uh, apparently references it in a couple novels. Um, there's an episode of Doctor Who that borrows from it. Uh, I think it was uh, called The Man in the Velvet Mask, and it had um, a French person who was known as Monsieur, and I don't know how to say six in in <laughs> French. I, I just don't know. I'm sorry, Kirsta, if you're listening right now. Uh, <laughs> um, oh, uh, this was one that was funny to me. 1998, there's a movie with Jean-Claude Van Damme called Double Team. I didn't know this existed. I have never heard of it until mm-hmm. this moment, except for maybe like I must have seen commercials for it when I was a teenager. But it says it has a similar setting where counter-terrorist agent Jack Quinn, played by Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, is knocked on conscious from an explosion and wakes up in the colony an inescapable invisible penal institution island for secret agents reminiscent of the village it's like they just took a whole movie but made it more yeah. actiony uh than this and again like there's there seems like quite a lot of uh tv show episodes that reference it and uh music uh lyrics that that reference it. so this seems to be formative for a lot of creative individuals um as it was airing or, or right after it went off the air there were three uh official like novel tie-ins that were published in the 60s and then, like I said, there's been lots of books that have been done since then. But in 1988, uh, DC Comics published a four-issue miniseries based on the show. And then I, I didn't had no idea, but in 2018, Titan Comics uh, got the rights and republished that four-issue miniseries and then produced a new four-issue miniseries about a new spy that is sent to the village. So it's still somewhat out there. Uh, like I said, 2009, there's that, uh, that AMC miniseries. There's the film adaptations always being rumored uh, and, you know, some comic book work that's being done. So it's still floating out there, which just fascinates me, uh, you know, for, for how old it is, um, but how, how much it's still uh, is clearly um, a touchstone for a lot of creative individuals that are storytellers. Well, and I wonder if there could be something that like tips its scale like, like Doctor Who, Doctor Who came back, right? And everyone tried to watch, you know, old episodes of Doctor Who and everything like that. It, is there something that could like push the zeitgeist just enough that everyone would actually watch this? I wonder if it, I mean, it may be that a big Hollywood director does tackle it as a film project. Cause like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, even, I, I follow miniseries and TV and I don't even remember that 2009 miniseries being reference like like i can't remember until i was reading it and then i saw like, it i think maybe Ian i heard Kamezel it and ian mckellen i was like whoa that's that's a good cast right there mm-hmm. and maybe um, maybe it's like okay do it like doctor who right do it as a continuation instead of a remake or something there's got to you know but like yeah is the, is the village could, still out could, there could something <laughs> reignite the the passion for it because because like i told you like i've watched a couple episodes like i'm kind of passionate about it now 
Yes. Um, you said you had a little trivia about where it was filmed. Some of the Yeah, locations. I had heard um, on a podcast called 99% Invisible. Um, they did a mini episode discussing the location of the village. Um, it is a real place. It is not a set. Like when you say it is a real place. So wh- what are we talking about? <laughs> so there is a place. I think it's in Wales called Port Marion. That is the location. There was an aristocrat who was an architect and was bored after I think it was World War II and said, oh, they're transforming all this wonderful architecture from Europe. I'm just going to go get some of it. And so he went and bought, you know, buildings and everything and and like transposed them to his estate in Wales and just assembled this this hodgepodge of styles and eras and colors. Very eclectic. The- yeah. Yeah. And, and he just reassembled all these things into different um configurations and everything and so there's like there's windows that go into rooms that don't have doors and there's like false verandas there's no way to access this veranda there's no stairs that go up to it or anything and it just kind of assembled this thing and it's so weird and odd but it is a place you can go to and people do it a ton because of of the prisoner but also because it's kind of like a great charming weird place oh that's fascinating if you know, wherever I'm allowed to travel again and I have funds to do so, that might be on my <laughs> but, someday. But, I'd but like everything's to go like, there. it's not, you know, recreations of, of these things. It's like, no, like these are the real bricks and the real chunks of building and the real plaster. It's not just facade. It's like uh, the Gargoyles cartoon opening, which yeah. a few listeners are going to very much appreciate that reference. Uh, <laughs> but I guess before we move on to the full summary, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode and for listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And all patrons who support us with five dollars per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss now on to the summaries uh the chimes of big ben is the first one that we're gonna cover oh and i guess i think i i I didn't end up saying this but i had it down to the trivia we're calling this episode number two of the series and if you we watch this on amazon prime and that's the order it is in there just know there are a lot of viewing orders for the prisoner and it is a little overwhelming to try and sort this out because there's no carryover of cast. There's really no carryover of plot lines. Uh, It's production order and it's release order on television. were very different. One of the first documentaries about the show uh, released its own suggested viewing order. And apparently there's like lots of websites you can go get lost in trying to sort out the ideal viewing order of uh, the prisoner and, and the episodes. And sometimes the, the production order and the release order are wildly different <laughs> as to when, when these were done. Um, so uh, yes, we're, we're going to be doing again. If you go pull this up on Amazon prime, this will be episode number two. Uh, the times of big bad number six is playing chess near the beach. When he sees a helicopter land and a woman on a stretcher is removed. Number two tells number six, that the woman is the new number eight. Okay. So uh, number six is our <laughs> this protagonist. This is so unfortunate for yes. our visualization of these characters. <laughs> number six meets this woman, uh, and she is suspicious that he's a village spy trying to manipulate her. Uh, she implies that she was a spy, and she's just been brought here, and she doesn't trust anyone. Um, he sees her try to escape by swimming into the ocean, but a rover captures her. Now let's touch on the rovers for a second. Is that what they're called? Apparently, I didn't know this until I was looking up uh, information about this because I don't think it was said in in any of the episodes I watched. Like it's no, the 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 weather balloons. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. The security, what one of the security devices that keeps number six in the village is a giant white balloon that rolls menacingly sort of towards him <laughs> whenever he's breaching a barrier where he's not supposed to be. And if you get touched by it, this part is creepy. Like you see a shot of like faces being pressed up against a balloon and screaming. And then they wake up in whatever room they've been taken to by the administration of the village. The rovers for me is one of the things that dated the show the most as mm-hmm. it felt a bit like a, uh, and Star Trek, the original series, bad side effect. Uh, our, our special effect episode because they were low on budget because they really blew the budget for some that had some really good special effects. Every time the rover appeared, I felt a little like this, is what, this doesn't give me a sense of menace, <laughs> but I'm also not sure I want something better. Mm-hmm. Like, like it's, it's part of the deal. And so I'm like, ah, I don't think I want it to be something CGI. I don't want it to be something that is visually more menacing. Like I don't want it to look like a security robot. And I will say the sound effect work does a lot, actually, to Mm -hmm. like if I just heard the sounds that we get with it without seeing this kind of wobbly white balloon rolling (laughs) across the screen. I think it would be much more menacing. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Day of the Dove, the Star Trek, the original series, where there's like a a glowing light is is the villain uh, and it's like floating around. uh, But it has some really cool sound effects and it's pretty effective. Um, and, And so... I, I don't know what it would be. It did definitely like put me in mind of the smoke monster and lost whenever it was like, mm-hmm. you knew the Rover was coming away again. JJ Abrams clearly influenced by this show, but I kind of like this better because it's like, it's there and it's weird, but it is also like, like it does have sort of a menacing thing. It's like, well, I don't want a big weathered balloon to like roll <laughs> over me either. Like, like not for any rational reason, but it's like, clearly this does something. Yes. But I don't know what, and I don't know how, but it's also so these- like, it's, it's tactile, right? It is present. Mm-hmm. And, and the shot some, of the faces CGI being pressed it. in against it, that is always going to mm-hmm. be a creepy shot. Um, yes. And so the rover had been like established for us as an audience in the, in the pilot. Uh, we knew what this was as soon as it was rolling after her. And he sees uh, the new number eight get captured. And uh, number two takes, uh, uh, lets number six see that she's being interrogated wow, with the hint of like, this is very bad for her. And so number six is worried about the new number eight uh and he agrees to make a deal with number two okay this is i know that could get a little confusing (laughs) i think number eight uh at one point says her name is nadia and so i may start calling her nadia this um we never actually learn number six's name at one point we hear him give a name but it absolutely feels like he's giving a fake name (laughs) when he says it out loud (laughs) I, i don't believe that's his name uh so number six agrees with number two that he will participate in village life and village activities this is something that number two has been pushing him to do to like integrate himself into the village and we should explain like the village has like all of the basic community social events there's like and they're like gearing up for uh like an art display like a community Mm -hmm. art display yeah it's an arts and craft fair basically yeah and so like they have like the village has functional community activity Mm mm-hmm and so, and number two wants him to be engaged and he says fine i will do this i'll go participate in your arts and craft fair if you're going to leave number eight alone so number six and i'll call her nadia now they grow closer but i i think i saw that patrick mcguin in doing this he had i think in part a reaction to star trek and like all the kirk romances he had a no kissing policy with him and the female like with his character and female characters uh he didn't want this to become like a captain kirk uh, <laughs> kind of situation uh so a, they grow a love closer. interest of the week 
Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, she says she knows exactly where this village is located. And if they can get away, she has a contact who will help them. Um, now, the, like we said, there's this arts and crafts show coming up. So number six agrees that he's going to make an entry just to keep number two, you know, off of his back. And so he goes and cuts down an entire tree and carves it extensively in one afternoon in a way that is inhuman. I will just I say. Mean, <laughs> I assumed it's like this has got to be multiple afternoons, right? weeks months months of like dedicated work where my only job is whittling down an entire tree into the shapes that we're going to see and he says this is a very large multi-piece abstract piece of art called escape it's clearly a boat guys we all know this it is it is is so obviously like from the first moment (laughs) like okay he's carving a boat like why doesn't anybody get it and then he calls it escape and it's like come on like that's (laughs) some that's some willful ignorance Yes, and that is one part that doesn't quite land for the episode is like, is he supposed to really be tricking anyone that they don't see that this is a boat? I don't know. Um, But for whatever reason, he gets awarded first place in the contest and he gets like these financial winnings. I think they're called units is uh, like in the the village or credits. Yeah, you get some form of money. And he says, you know what? With my winnings, I want to buy the tapestry that this runner up has made. It's this lovely older lady. And she made a tapestry that is of number two. So it's like number two, like a political campaign poster for the current Mm -hmm. number two that we have. And he buys that tapestry that night. uh, Number six and Nadia go to the beach and they assemble his abstract art piece into a raft shock and surprise but then this is my favorite touch where I'm like okay I'm all in <laughs> this, like, is, once this again. is the best part <laughs> they use the, that tapestry as a sail <laughs> so the tapestry number two is what's gonna catch the wind and blow them away from the village like once I they pulled that out I was like I was kind of like guffawing at exactly. the whole raft situation but when they unfurl that it's like chef's kiss that was perfect yeah. <laughs> like somehow that reversed my attitude towards this but i was like ah the stupid boat that he had like built out of these pieces for his art project and then he was like why is that the sale i love it so much Uh, and they do manage to escape. They uh, sail and reach land, and they meet number eight's contact. Uh, number six's watch is broken, so he has to borrow the contact's watch. Uh, number six and number eight hide in a large packaging box and are basically shipped to London. Once there, they go to his old spy office and meet his former boss. I mean, he, he arranges for them to be delivered there, basically, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's straight from the box. He's at his spy uh, agency. Uh, and... But his old agency does not trust him anymore because number six might be a double agent. Maybe that's where why he quit and why why he's disappeared. And he says he will reveal why he quit if number eight is given protection. Uh, and just then he hears the chimes of Big Ben and he's about to make his big monologue to his boss. But he looks at his borrowed watch and realizes that the time on it matches the time the time chimes are playing. But there should be a time difference uh, based on where he'd been told the village was and where he was picked up, uh, the, you know, based on his escape route that the woman had told him. So he realizes uh, he's never actually left the village. The whole thing must have been a ruse. And he searches the office and finds a tape player playing the sounds of London. And he walks out and sees he is still in the village. And number eight, Nadia, is standing next to number two outside the door. The end. Uh, then we have many happy returns. Number six wakes up and the village is empty. The water doesn't run. The radio doesn't play. The phone doesn't work. He explores his now empty surroundings and everything is just abandoned. He rings the church bell. There's no response from anywhere. He visits the admin building where he usually goes to meet whatever, whoever is number two this week, but that is abandoned. He finds an abandoned taxi and he drives to the edge of town. He chops down a tree. (laughs) Again, he loves to (laughs) chop down trees and he uses some empty barrels to make a raft. He prepares supplies from the village store uh, and he also takes, uh, he finds a camera in the village store and takes pictures of everything. 
as he's about about to sail off, he hears a dish break and he looks and sees that it's just a stray cat that had knocked a dish over. He sails out into the ocean. Uh, he puts the film from the camera in a plastic bag to keep it safe from any water. He uses a magnet from a radio speaker to magnetize a needle and prepare a floating cork compass. Sweet move. I loved that. That one was really great. I was like, oh, he's <laughs> going to make uh, like I remember it's like, why does he have that? Oh, he's going to make a compass. Yes. Uh, we see him uh, keeping a log of his days. Like uh, he grabs some of the, the village has a newspaper that gets put out every day. And so he's writing on that to keep a log. We see him like writing day five and we see him eating spam. Day seven, he's falling asleep while he's sitting up. Day 15, he's just passed out on the raft. A boat pulls up alongside the raft and takes his supplies and then just throws his passed out body into the ocean. <laughs> and as that boat is pulling away, he revives enough to go and swim to it and grab a hold of it. He climbs aboard and hides on it. Uh, he he breaks into a supply crate and finds lots of weapons there and he realizes these are gun runners he goes down to the uh, kitchen and he sets some dirty rags on fire the two-man crew yell at each other in russian i think it was russian but i'm not 100 sure i think it was german german okay in german uh I, this i am not 100 percent sure that any of the foreign languages because they don't do subtitles for him so i'm not sure that they are actual lines in those foreign languages or if they are just trying to make it sound vaguely foreign yeah. I will say this is the first spoken word, and I think it's like 21 minutes into the episode. Yeah, this it's is, like half of the episode. As he's wandering around the village, he never says anything to himself. He never like monologues his plans. And I was still pretty captivated with the storytelling. It was well done. Um, so this is the first time we hear anything at all. Uh, so now smoke is coming through the uh, boat. And so one of the two man crew go down to check on it. Number six knocks him out. After a while, the second one comes down to figure out what happened to number the, you know, the first guy that went down and number six knocks him out and ties him up and he changes the door to the room that they're in. And he goes and takes control of the boat. Uh, and number six sees a shoreline and a lighthouse. The two prisoners work together to escape in a pretty cool way. Like there's a weak spot between their room and the next room over that they break through so uh like he'd almost trapped them then there's a fight scene in the claustrophobic cabin uh of, of the boat and one of the crew guys gets a gun so number six leaps out and, but he's able to swim to shore and he still has the plastic bag with film in his pocket he wanders inland and comes across a man walking his dog and asks where is this and that okay this is what I, I put it down this is 22 minutes in that we get the first english words at all mm -hmm. Uh, the man ignores him and walks away. Number six follows and they come to kind of a gypsy camp. It kind of seems um, and they're speaking another language, but point him to a road that he follows and he goes down and he sees traffic and he sees officers directing traffic, but he doesn't trust anyone uh, because, you know, he's been trapped in this strange, surreal <laughs> he's village. Got some, some serious <laughs> trust issues. Yes. So he sneaks onto the back of a truck and he hides on the back of it until he hears uh, like the sounds of a city, like an urban environment. And he jumps off and he looks around and it's downtown and he's in London and he goes and knocks on the door of the old house, uh, which for like the audience, we recognize it because that's they recreated that house for him in the village. So it looks the same. Uh, so clearly they're using the same set, but it works out really well for this. Uh, a maid comes and says the mistress of the house isn't home. He starts to walk away. And then a woman driving his fantastic car from the opening credits that at this point I've seen seven times. And now I'm seeing it in an episode. And I was so excited. This little yellow car gets, gets, pulls up. And I love like the license plate number has the word car. It's like K-A-R. Like, <laughs> why is this car labeled car? Oh, it's so good. Uh, and uh, she says her name is Mrs. Buttersworth. I believe it was. Did I, get mm -hmm. that right? I love yep. that name. Uh, and and she's just like this great, sassy, fun old lady who's like up for an adventure. He like confronts and, her and says, that's my car. And he's like, great. You want to tell me about it? <laughs> and she has like a tremendous amount of swagger. And I'm also like, I don't know how old she is, but mm -hmm. she is she is moving with like the confidence and swagger of like a young, attractive woman. 
Yes. Even even though it's like it, I'd I'd say she's at least middle aged. Mm-hmm. And so she she invites him. Uh, he, she's like, "This is my house. That's my car." And she's like, "Why don't you come in and tell me about it? I'm a widower. I could use an adventure. Tell me." <laughs> Seems to be like she's she's up for anything. And he comes in and says his name is. And he like pauses. He's like Peter Smith. I'm like, that's not your name. <laughs> that's not real. Uh, he tells her about details of the house to convince her they lived here. And she says, you don't have to convince me. I believe you. I just bought this place. <laughs> like someone lived here before. It was probably you. Uh, and he says, well, I'm not used to people believing me without me having to like really prove it. <laughs> he asks the date. Uh, like, well, like what day is it? I have no idea even what day it is. And she says what it is. He's like, oh, my birthday's tomorrow. And he says, I have to go make some calls around town. But she says, your clothes are torn and dirty. Why don't you borrow some of my my husband's old clothes? I saved them after he passed. I don't know why. And why don't you take your old car and go run your errands and come back tomorrow? I will bake you a birthday cake. And, and so, it's, you know, she just seems to be the most delightful woman. And now we see the driving sequence from the opening credits as he drives into the office and storms it. And it's like the exact opening credits and i love it uh but, but old, it is different right like his yeah. hair's a little longer and everything his hair's a little yeah but it's, it's like shot the exact same way um and so he goes and confronts his bosses and they're like freaked out that he's there because uh, again no one trusts anyone like they lay this out in in just conversation like he's like i don't know if you locked me up on the island because i quit and they're like well we don't know if you're a double agent yeah because because uh, <laughs> to them he like they always say it's like you resigned and then you disappeared mm-hmm uh so but he has the film and so he develops it and and he has the newspaper from the from the village and he gives that to them and so they develop the film and they look at it and he tries to explain that the village is like but they're very skeptical um but then uh they uh they go and corroborate all the details of his story like since he reached the beach they can go talk to uh you know everyone that he encountered and everything that he says is checking out uh and so they bring in some more people they estimate the maximum and minimum speeds of travel that he may have had on his little escape raft and i es- i enjoyed that sequence way too much <laughs> like i don't I, know I why it. it's enjoyable at all but i'm like that was really enjoyable seeing them just like carve out on the map where he must have been so yeah they, they get a compass and, and they've estimated and they show them like adjusting the compass to say okay this many miles is about the most you could have traveled and they put the point of the compass down on the beach that he landed on and they do the circle and they're like okay and if it was less convenient less good weather here's the slower level you know the, the yeah. smaller distance you go down do another circle and they're like this is your range but with the winds that you had it was probably in this section of the circle or, uh, or they I'm, say like what was his compass heading like what did he estimate his compass right. heading to be yeah, like what direction he up yeah and they're like okay so it's just this little chunk and they're like yeah it's you know a very manageable chunk to investigate yes and uh something about the uh like analog tech uh being used to so it feels a little like um like we watch something like uh hidden figures or apollo 13 and they're like using chalkboards to do all the complex math Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know but it's it's like really visually satisfying uh and it just worked well and and like it did all of the work that in like crime shows when someone's just like typing away at a keyboard and they're like enhance enhance like mm-hmm. you know like that that investigation work except like you watch them actually doing it and it's like oh yeah or you like, can actually like think through this problem you don't just like click buttons on the keyboard 
or or like the the pinging the cell phone and they're like it, it, and you see like the map zoom in and it's like it's got to be in this mm-hmm. area you know that, yeah, that kind but, of thing but seeing humans like do the thinking i was like that's really cool and they're like holding the compass up to the a ruler to like get the exact distance of like mm-hmm. okay this, this is this many miles uh yeah it, it was it was kind of fun to see that um and so they say he must have escaped from somewhere uh like west morocco or south of portugal or spain maybe an island in there um and so he and a pilot get into a spy plane to go search that area that has been mapped out and number six is just you know staring out the window looking everywhere um and he he sees the the village like he he he's like that's it that's it and he's like he's grabbing the pilot's shoulder he's like this is it this is it and the pilot uh turns and says be seeing you and then pulls a switch to launch number six's ejector seat and a stray cat watches as number six's parachute lands on the beach the village still appears to be deserted and number six looks around and he walks back to his apartment and as soon as he steps in the water turns on and then mrs butterworth walks in with a birthday cake and says many happy returns and he looks out the window and sees the village is once again fully populated the end finding out that mrs butterworth is part of the village is a crazy twist when she walks in with the birthday cake i'm like this is my favorite episode so far (laughs) you're like Like, oh no I, I think like thematically, so some of the other episodes that we haven't done, like there's one where like he runs in an election for number two. And I think there's some really fascinating commentary about democracy and modern politics that is happening in that where like there's an election in the village to see who will be number two. And he's running against the incumbent number two. Um, and <laughs> uh, So I think there's maybe some uh, episodes that had like more maybe thematic commentary about about things. But that twist at the end when she walks in with the birthday cake, when there's what felt like a throwaway line earlier where it's like, my birthday is tomorrow. She's like, I'll make you a cake. And you just think that's like revealing what kind of peppy woman has mm-hmm. bought his his house. And then we get this at the very end. I was like, oh, that finale what? is so and great. It makes me feel like it makes me feel like like it was all a plot to celebrate his birthday. Like, did they do this for him to celebrate his birthday? But then there's enough where it's like, Okay, but maybe he really did get away, but they can like close it back in, right? Like they, like it seems obvious that they replaced the pilot mm-hmm. at, yes. at some point, and and he's, so well, when he's uh, when the pilot is walking up, like he already has his mask on, and it's immediately suspicious. Like he's got yeah. his little uh, you know uh, air mask on, yeah. And so there's like something, something's up, and it's like okay, so they can like they can get him back, right? They're so secure that even if he gets away, they know they can get him back. And they've got enough like checkpoints, like his old house is being occupied by someone who's in on it and all these kinds of things. I'm like, this is like, what is going on? Like, did they do this as like a birthday present? Like, go have an adventure. <laughs> but but also like he was out on the ocean for like 15 days. So they planned it two weeks ahead. Well, and he, he almost died on the ocean. Like, what if he really had? Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they planted the gun runners. You know, there's a, you, you, you twist yourself into knots, try to work it all out. But it really is. A satisfying like whoa twist uh, I mean, at, at and, the end of the episode and kind of similar in um in in the chimes of big ben we're like how in on it was nadia the whole time or did she actually try to escape because mm-hmm. it sure seems like she actually tried to escape and they actually sent a rover after her but then it's yes. like did they just turn her and then she was like okay well i'll help you work against him now but when she's standing there with number two at the end i really feel like she was a plant the entire time like they were yeah. trying to play on his sympathies for uh a new you know someone who's being him like in our first episode we get him as the fish out of water and the second episode it's 
the same thing is happening to someone else. And so his sympathies are being played on him as an audience. It's like, oh, this must be, you know, maybe this is going to be part of the rhythm of the show is new people being dropped in. I really think Nadia, uh, the, the new number eight was, was a plant the whole way through just to try and, uh, you know, trick him and break him into, mm-hmm. uh, into being more of a participant in the village and hopefully eventually reveal why he quit. And I love that. That's the mystery that is and driving. This is like, not like all the secrets that you have. It's like, no, why, why did you quit <laughs> as the spy? Mm-hmm. But, but then there's enough ambiguity. Like we've said, like he doesn't know, is this his own bosses that are part of this? Is this, uh, you know, uh, part of the cold war, uh, you know, some well, and, enemy. And like the, I mean the, the sense that I get, like, it seems like his bosses are involved. Like his bosses want to know why he quit. Like he interacts with his actual bosses and they like take him back to the village, mm-hmm. but he doesn't know, like, are his bosses, you know, part of a Russian conspiracy or or what? And and so like the sense is almost like this is a shared operation, like all of the different units, like maybe the Russians and the English and the Americans are sending people here and like, whenever they like, have a spy that. They don't understand their decisions. They get sent to the village. Yeah. And, and we all like kind of agree. This is our neutral zone where we figure out the rogues because we can't have the rogue elements on the board. Like we yeah. understand your position, my position. We're at war. Uh, you know, we're at a cold war or whatever it may be. But having these people that are just being so individual and, and doing their own thing, that's not good for anyone's business. So we send them to the village to sort it out. Yeah. Or or there's some sort of agreement where they're like paying the village to take care of things. It's like, look. We can't have these people, but we can't like Ooh, store them like or that. we can't have them with other countries. Like we can't so the, allow the villages like a, a Switzerland, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's a neutral ground where instead of keeping all your money there, ever, everyone can keep their their defecting spies there. Yeah, it's like, OK, like we don't know what's going on with this person. And like if they like if we let them go, they could defect and, you know, share secrets. But if we keep them, they could manipulate us. So we got to just put them somewhere. You know, it's 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 like that junk drawer that everyone has in their kitchens. Like, well, I can't have this anywhere else. I can't put this anywhere. I, I like that a lot. And I think this is like this kind of discussion and that kind of speculation is why this show is still very popular and you know still gets talked about and has its appreciation society that formed a decade later because people had to talk about it with each other and like and, talk through and, these kinds of potential variables. I don't think anything that we're saying here is going to be groundbreaking for, mm-hmm. and I've not gone and consumed like all the fan discussions, but there must be so many fan theories about the show that exist and fan fiction that's been written about the show and explanations that have been posited, uh, yeah. you know, in, in conversations amongst fans. Um, and, you know, and I've got to say, yeah, like I am having like all, like my satisfaction is amplified by having like, these speculations is like, oh, but like, was Nadia a spy the whole time, like a- against him the whole time, or was she turned? And like, that is so satisfying. And I'm like, I don't actually want, I don't want the answers. I don't want to be right. I want to speculate. I want to think about it. I want to like have a discussion about it and have someone point out something that I'm not realizing, right? Like, now, I I don't want them to explain it. I've not gone and researched a lot about the finale because, like I said, I plan to watch these next ten episodes and get to the finale and whatever it is. It will be and I'll know that was it. You know, this this is now, you know, from 1969, like that, that is whatever it's going to be. But I wonder if part of the goal was to leave enough open ended discussion like, points. I, I'm hoping that, there's enough ambiguity. Yeah, that there's a lot of ambiguity for discussion, but maybe some satisfaction is given on on some of the things. Um, I don't know if it is that he escapes, but we don't know what you know what happens or whatever. Maybe. But I, I, I'm guessing they deliberately some of it ambiguous to try and foment that kind of discussion. But 
I completely understand why that would be frustrating for many fans. You know, uh, there's some fans who may enjoy that kind of discussion more than others and others who want, okay, this is the finale. I want these questions answered. And I think that's one reason why we see the divide in the lost fandom is a lot of it is, well, Mm -hmm. I want all the questions answered and others are like, well, I I kind of enjoy the ambiguity. And I think those are both valid ways to consume a show. And there are certainly plenty of narratives that do that wrap up. Here's exactly where every character goes in the next 10 years, you know, kind of, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it'll be a peek ahead to, to really tie everything off. And that, can be a very satisfying kind of show. And I'm not saying it's wrong to enjoy that. Um, but I, I understand why if there's the kind of ambiguity we're seeing from episode to episode is still pervasive at the end, why some people would feel uh, um, a little frustrated with that. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know why I enjoy the idea of it being ambiguous. Why, why do I enjoy the idea of just speculating and never having an answer for this where there's other things where it's like, but I totally need an answer. You know, like like that was a huge part of the discussion of WandaVision um, several several weeks or months ago was everyone speculating and then getting frustrated that speculations weren't being um, matched oh, by, the, yes. by, by the finale. Like, OK, but I have questions about this character. Well, this character is not actually that important. You know, like that doesn't actually lead to anything. Um, mm-hmm. And and I know a lot of people were very frustrated and disappointed by those kinds of things. And then this one's like. Okay, I have a theory about this character. I don't want them to tell me if I'm right or wrong mm-hmm. because because it doesn't have and I like I'm wondering if like part of it is that this world is so contained. Like you have that silent three minute intro every time, which and I, I will and never I love skip. That. Even I if I'm going for like from one episode right into the next, I'm not going to skip that. It's kind of like mm-hmm. uh, Cheers has its over like minute long theme song with the the old timey photos, and like Netflix gives you the like or when the it was skip back intro. Netflix, it would give the skip intro. I was like. Oh who would skip the intro to cheers? Like, why would you do that? This is um, three minutes and 12 seconds long is the intro to the prisoner on every episode. And I'm just going to watch Patrick McGowan's like angry walk as uh, he crosses into lights and you get like the shadow light play of, mm-hmm. you know, someone fast walking under different lights that that shows like to do. Um, it's, it's just such a great introduction and, to, and like, to the series. And the fact that that's like everything I know about his background, like they don't give me flashbacks or anything. And that's, that's something that lost gave you a lot of, it's like what's mm-hmm. going on before or after um, with flash forwards and everything. And then this one's like, I really don't know what he did as a spy. I know he was a spy. I don't know who he was spying on. I don't it's know if he implied that he was very good at being a spy. Yeah. And it's like, it, it. It, seems, it seems like he was good at it, but like not a super spy. Like he struggles when he gets in a fight. Um, mm-hmm. And like two people can overpower him. Um, and and so you've got like all that going on. I'm like, I don't really need to know a lot about his background. Like, was he stationed in France? Was he stationed in Moscow? What languages does he speak? I don't really know. I don't I don't know any of that stuff and I don't need it because what I do know is like he's here on the village and I don't really care about him being on the village. You know, like I don't want to know that extra stuff because then maybe I'd care about my speculation being right or wrong. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the village because that is like the whole world that exists in the village in terms of the costume design of all the people who are living in the village and what I had assumed was the amazing set design. But now I've learned from your trivia that it is a real uh, place. Um, a- effective use of a real place. Yeah, it's just a fascinating little bubble. And I was trying to think of like the adjectives that we could use to describe the village. And I put... Orwellian, surreal, postmodern, avant-garde, and trippy. Those were the ones 
<laughs> that I came up. Mm-hmm. I, I think we could throw in like eclectic because there's so many different styles of architecture that exist uh, simultaneously. Simultaneously, also creepy because sometimes the villagers are all doing stuff in unison. Sometimes they all freeze. Like it, and we're not given like warning before these kinds of things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's like there's like statues with heads that rotate so they can watch, and mm-hmm. and everyone says "be seeing you," and and, and has that gesture. That they that they do whenever they say say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Yes. Are there and, any and, other adjectives you would give to the village? Because it's just a fascinating bit of like filmmaking of television, like this world mm-hmm. that they they create so quickly. As as like when he opens his window, and looks out, it's like oh, I, I feel so many things looking at that. Um, I think Trippy was maybe the best one that that you used. Like, there's definitely like there is the Orwellian stuff, but that's kind of behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a subtext to it, and. Like, I wanted to say whimsical, but I'm like, whimsical is not the right word. But there's, yeah. you know, like the 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 bright colors. And that's where I think it's like maybe trippy is the right mm-hmm. word. Like it's a 1960s. Um, Which uh, the aesthetic of of, you know, like the drug culture and, yeah. and that, uh, even the word itself trippy, like it is a reference to that. And you definitely are getting some of that aesthetic within the show. There's like a, a bright vibrancy, like almost Andy Warhol mm-hmm. kind of element to it you know the, like the, and, the pop art yeah and and some of it is like the era and and like the fashion and everything and like there's a lot of people in turtlenecks and like okay that kind of evokes warhol to me mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so there's <laughs> there's elements of that where but it you know it's very 1960s and i i wonder if it's impossible to like remove the aesthetic from the culture right of that time period like like in other situations you can't you can tell that like the aesthetic is not dependent on like the time period culture but this is dipping into that culture in a particular way. Like it's painting with that specific brush in a specific way for a specific purpose. And in, in, in a way that I don't think like anything about lost is especially early two thousands or the good place aesthetic is like definitively 2019. Right. You know, but this one's like, yeah, it's very sixties. Right. In, in a very clear is. way. Yeah. And I think a lot of the themes are also very 60s. Like there's a and, very. And it's not just. Oh, and it's, it's like not exclusively just like fashion or or culture. It's like, no, like we are doing 60s. Like they're like they're so self-aware mm-hmm. about what the 60s culture is, which is something I feel like the 60s is able to do better than any other era. Like the 90s couldn't parody the 90s. Like the '60s managed to parody the '60s somehow. Yeah, I think I think there's like the the camp movement, and this is not campy the way like Batman is campy, but the, I think that is a mark of like a level of self awareness. Um, and uh, self aware is definitely part of it. Yes, to agree, like a a little deprecation of like we know some of this is performative. That there's an earnest earnestness in other er- eras or a cynicism in other eras that doesn't lend itself to that kind of performance um, of like trying to capture it. And in trying to think about the you know the um, the prisoner and and the world of the village and everything, I was like, what? Like, yes, some of these episodes are like fun mind tricks and they have these trippy elements that I was trying to think about like but what is it actually saying and it just like once I that's one reason why I put Orwellian and like the, the discussion I'm like oh this actually is really a Cold War text <laughs> like it mm-hmm. it has a lot of the uh, not just the spy overtones but the the who can you trust and the idea of superpowers that are uh, aware and controlling and monitoring um, again in that kind of analog pre-digital way um, the, the, you know, the idea that there's a, uh, 
someone who actually does know everything, but it's not because they're tracking cookies on your, on your smartphone today. <laughs> it's but, because they're just watching. They're just yes. gathering the information about you through observation. And I think there's like, a, there's a level of discomfort that you get in that cold war era that has kind of disappeared because we all so willingly put so much information online and we kind of accept as a cost of doing business that, uh, you know, our phones have GPS in them and sometimes we want it to because we want it to tell us where to go. But we also know that GPS is always there. And so maybe someone really does know where we are. Like, I'm not important enough that I think anyone cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's the idea is like in the back of your mind, like this, I'm carrying a camera and a microphone and a GPS tracker on me permanently. And, uh, you know, that would have been horrifying in the 60s well and, <laughs> right? and that's like a, that's a part of the first episode right number two mm-hmm. puts puts a bunch of his like growing up pictures and he's like reading from the file and then he also has this weird thing where he's like oh here's a piece of info that we don't know mm-hmm. and and he and then he like provides it to him to you know be part of the the conversation but i'm, I'm like it's so weird that they would like say like we know everything actually we don't know everything but we know so much that it is compelling right uh, whereas like that kind of piece of information is like, well, that would they would totally know that now. Mm-hmm. And again, it's so much of that kind of information is the things that we willingly give. And, mm-hmm. you know, we willingly post on uh, Facebook media. or store on our computer files. And so if anyone had it, it'd be like, well, they got into my Google Drive or, you know, well, you know, whatever it may be that we, we imagine is how like some nefarious government organization could have it. Uh, but it feels more ominous and threatening and controlling in the in, again, in that more analog era. Um, yeah, uh, it, it feels like somehow privacy truly has been violated. Mm-hmm. In, in a way that's like now it's like oh that's that's a violation of privacy not because you shouldn't be able to have that information but you shouldn't be using it against me right or, or and at the very least like now we kind of like well i know how you got that information would be the reaction more so than you know how, how can you even know that about me which i think would have been a valid expression of outrage up until you know the last 20 30 years <laughs> when we started digitizing our lives to to the degree that we have mm-hmm um, what I, it, this is something we get into in, in a lot of episodes, but like, let's talk about the characteristics of number six. Like, okay. I, I like him. I like him a lot. And if you have never seen Patrick McGowan, I will say in some of the, the shots, it made me think of Hugh Laurie in house with the kind of like glowering energy uh, of house, like his facial features mm-hmm. a little bit, not Hugh Laurie and like black adder when he's playing a goofball, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, but he's, he's got like, like a furrowed brow, like an intentionally mm-hmm. furrowed brow. Like and I think his face natural, has like, a little is... Hugh Laurie ish, you know, to, to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also some of the, like the way he moved and uh, like ran and, and some of the punches he threw it. And I don't know if this is just an acting <laughs> style of the era. It very much reminded me of captain Kirk in star Trek, the original <laughs> series. Yeah. Like it, it's very like it feels contemporary with Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's uh, like some of the physicality that I see with him. But as far as like if I was going to def- define who he is, he's clearly very thoughtful and like it, to to a degree uh, unflappable. Like he is in this absurd situation. Like absurdism is definitely one of the the tropes <laughs> or like mm-hmm. generic elements of of it like almost like dada-esque absurdism where it feels like the village is doing weirdness just to like keep him off balance uh and he seems unflapped <laughs> right uh he's he's just gonna take in the information um and he's and at, with that in mind i liked him a lot more in the non-pilot episodes because in the pilot he is like i'm not gonna let it get to me i'm not gonna play their games he, he's very resistant and mm-hmm. I like him a lot more in 
the the chimes of Big Ben, where he's kind of like, I'm going to play along. I'm going to make jokes. I'm going to talk to number two like we're old friends and and make it happy. But I'm also always going to be thinking about how to get out of it. But I liked him a lot more when he was kind of playing along to some degree. Yeah. And he's gathering information um, like mm-hmm. like he realizes that just resisting all the time um is is cutting him off from potential avenues of information and in some yeah, of the other episodes it's, it's disadvantageous to, yeah, to try other... and fight mm-hmm. all all the time and so like playing along has its benefits and in some of the other episodes he's able to play along enough to realize what the game is and get the upper hand and like win that episode and you know and completely thwart number two's plan and it doesn't get him off the island but it, it just shows like i I've outthought you and uh, you know, I frustrated you in the, in this way for this one particular scheme, but he had to play long enough to, you know, find out what the scheme actually was. Cause if he's just, like you said, kind of being obstinate and stoic, uh, he, he, he can't uh, really thwart the, what he, what he doesn't even know about mm-hmm. anything else for you that stands out uh, for you about his character. Um, I, I really like what you said about, you know, like being thoughtful and cerebral because that is a, really a big part of it. Like he's, you know, everything he's doing, it seems like he's doing it for two reasons, you know, mm-hmm. and hey. that's not something that you get out of every character, right? Like that's not a, a thoughtful depth that you get out of every character. A, a lot of people, it's like, okay, they're single minded in the moment. And he's like, well, I am building my boat but i am also showing number two that i'm participating i am trying to be congenial i am trying to be pleasant um, but i'm also trying to be sneaky and you feel like you you feel that layering where you you can tell like uh with the, with the new number eight like i am getting to know the new number eight but i'm also very much on guard that this is a, a plant uh and i don't know which way this path is going to go mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm, I'm willing to yeah, go down either path uh that i'm using her to gather more information about their schemes or i i'm going to work with her to literally escape because she is like me has you know a spy that's just been dropped on the uh, into the village yeah um so i i really like that that sense of thoughtfulness um and you see it, you see it when he um, escapes in, in um, many happy returns also, right? Like he's planning, he is thinking, he is creating a game plan for what is he going to do and how is he going to do it? How can he convince people? Um, he's, you've got the non-trusting, but non-trusting in the village is different from non-trusting when he thinks he's gotten back to the real world. Yes. Yeah. Like he's, he's still like, so so on guard uh, with, with every interaction when he when he's in London, uh, but he's able to play, a, like you said, a different kind of, um, you know, distancing uh, in, in the two settings. And then also, I just love the way Patrick McGowan plays like the weariness of landing on the beach and like looking and seeing that stray cat from the beginning of the episode is still just sitting on the wall waiting for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like just the the weariness, uh, not like well, defeated, but just like and oh. then the, well, and then it's such a fine line like to be defeated and to still like go back to his house mm-hmm. and have the water turn on and everything. And there's like, I think there's kind of a satisfaction in the comfort that he does have in the village. Like he is comfortable. Right. And he doesn't like deny himself those comforts. Like he's, he's not skipping the showers just because they're provided by the village. Right. Which absolutely would be a beat. I think in a lot of stories about, you know, someone like this is my form of protest. Um, yeah, he's he's not overly protesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so he's just kind of interesting. I, I, I do. I really do think I liked him a lot better after the pilot episode. Everything I saw after the pilot episode, I was like, OK, I like him better because that first one, it is obstinate. 
Yes, I think you're right. Uh, and I, I'm thinking back because I, you know, like I said, I've, I've burned through seven of these basically in the last week. So it, in some ways, I got to like think back, OK, who was he in the pilot? And I think you're right. He was a little bit, you know, just, you know, kind of spitting in their face uh, and and resistant. Uh, and by episode two, it's now like, OK, uh, we're going to have a little cat and mouse give and take happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that. I, I, playfulness might, might not be the, the right word, but it allows like a, just a different level to be played for him in terms of who this character is. Yeah, it, it, it's like he realizes, well, there's no point in me like being miserable while I'm miserable. <laughs> you know, like I might as well enjoy what I can enjoy out of what I'm doing. You know, like he he enjoys playing chess with somebody and he's, you know, doing things like he goes and sits on the beach. And, and he'll have and conversations it, with people and you know he's always on guard that they're lying to him, but he's gathering information as he like asks, he's like, this person is claiming to have been a general and he's trying to figure out where they might have been a general at, you know, mm-hmm. what country would they have been a general for? And, um, I, and but it also like you something in the performance of the writing lets you know he he doesn't trust this person, uh, but mm-hmm. he's going to have this conversation right now. And it it really did feel like being performative was something he enjoyed, right? When he's performative in, in the art show, mm-hmm. he's like. I I am enjoying this not just because I think I'm fooling them, but like I kind of enjoy playing a part, you know, like maybe that's something that appealed to him as a spy. Like he has he really does like seem to be enjoying things in this, even as much as he is tortured by this. Yeah. Um, Do you have any final takeaways or thoughts about either the character or the show itself or the village, which really is like a character on the show? (laughs) Um, Well, we had talked about this a a tiny bit. but like it's it's a very good like multicultural representation throughout the series as they bring yeah. in other actors and everything it's like they are bringing in all kinds of other actors mm-hmm. um to, yeah, to play with it's not like in every episode but there's actors of color that that appear and because of the nature of how they are dealing with whatever organization is running the village like it's you know for for one episode there's a, a very prominent uh, you know, a- actor of color that's playing a role and they're gone the next episode. And that doesn't feel like, uh, you know, like, oh, they're they're just missing. It's just the nature of this world. It is still like a predominantly white cast uh, yeah. that's going on, but it's not but, exclusively white. And, and, and a lot for, of women. Yes, that was one thing. Like when I was looking up, so I having never watched it. I just Googled like, what are the top episodes of uh, of the prisoner? And I saw several different lists and uh, the um many happy returns was listed in several of them. So I'm like, okay, well, we're at least going to do episode number seven. That seems to be one that's pretty prominent. Uh, and then probably the pilot, just to set it, we decided to move up past the pilot because of the reasons you said that the character feels a little more fully formed in the second episode. Um, but one of the lists started with saying something about like, there's not very many, you know, strong women characters in, in the prisoner. And every episode I've watched has had a prominent woman in a very different kind of role, sometimes as like a power position in, uh, in the organization, uh, you know, sometimes as like a double agent that's clearly trying to trick him. Um, and, and so the the show has no other recurring character than Patrick, <laughs> you know, the number six. That's it. That's who I we think, have. I think as maybe a, a couple character. of the people in the village are yeah, and, like the same actors, but and, like in small parts. Like I said, glancing at trivia, it seems like maybe a number two returns after like, you know, five or six episodes. Suddenly they're back and with no explanation, uh, which is great. I love that. That's fine. <laughs> um but every episode has had, you know, a, a woman that's playing a prominent role. So I've no, I, I don't have issues with that. And um, they're never like as fully developed as the number six, but no character in the show is. So that's just part mm-hmm. of the, you know, the nature of this particular show. I, I mean, you were saying there's no other recurring characters. There's that guy in the control room. The bald guy with glasses. 
I feel like I saw him in the pilot and um, and and chimes of Big Ben at least. I think in some other, in, definitely some other episodes, is a completely new group in the, in the control in, room in that control room with that yeah. weird seesaw thing. Yes, <laughs> which is one of the visual uh, things that gets uh, you know just uh, acknowledged in some other pop culture is you know the uh, in, in the control room there's like. Panel, like a circular room with panels all the way around and there's two people like you said writing in the seesaw that's rotating in 360 degrees but also bobbing up and down so their like positions are going up and down mm-hmm. like they're on a seesaw but they're facing out like into telescopes is what it looks like or into binoculars yeah uh, so it's, it's a very odd visual but it's it's kind of compelling to see there <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's I, I love that in that control room there'll be something like that and then there will be a very large penny farthing, uh, farthing bike in the background uh but that becomes a symbol on all there like there's there's just odd things um there's the, one the rainbow umbrellas mm-hmm. there's one number two who drinks a lot of milk and that's just <laughs> such a great odd character touch that you know he's a servant is bringing him a glass of milk and he's drinking it. it's like milk is staying in his mustache a little bit <laughs> you know they just just what feels like like odd kind of surreal choices is happening a lot in the show, but it also, it doesn't feel like, you know, surrealism for the sake of surrealism, which I think it could, um, there's some shows that are this kind of like trippy feeling where it just feels like, you know, they're doing a dream sequence where, you know, a, a bird pops out of that thing and, you know, that thing melts and, you know, whatever it may be. And, and some of it just feels the purpose is to be strange. And I think, there is a purpose to be strange and to leave the audience at number six, like off balance, but also it doesn't feel like it's like going so far that it's just weirdness for the sake of weirdness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think like something about this is like, this is made to be enjoyed and mm-hmm. not every show is made to be enjoyed. Like it's made to made to be consumed or to mean something to you or to have an effect on you. And I feel like, like the effect that this wants me to have is like, Hey, like enjoy this being a little bit weird and a little bit compelling and a little bit intense sometimes and a little bit thrilling sometimes, but like enjoy it always. Yes. And I absolutely do think it is making commentaries and having themes about the very specific era when it was being made in the late sixties. <laughs> and there's a lot to be said about the late sixties. <laughs> um, and, and the show is, you know, part of that, but it's also, you know, it's being produced in that era, but it's also commenting on on that very specific moment in time. All right. Well, if you have never watched The Prisoner, I'd recommend it. Currently, it is available if you have Amazon Prime. Uh, that's where we found it. I'm sure it's so strange to try and tell people where to go find shows because they're simultaneously everywhere, not the service that you have. I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> available for rental, most likely through some you know, streaming rental service. Uh, I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Did you you have any final thoughts, Andrew? No, I'm good. Okay. Well, thank you listeners for joining us for show notes and links to all the other great dueling genre shows. You can go to duelinggenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Toft who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew is at Disminute, and our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Be seeing you. I'm so sorry. I just bumped my mic. (laughs) I know, but I was talking, so I could have cut it.
Um, 